First Thessalonians chapter three. Uh, our last two sermons, both last Sunday morning, Sunday night, we drew our focus in on the topic of the nature of Christian faithfulness found in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. If you remember last week, I took a little bit of time to show you how many times the word faith or believer or believing is found at the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3. Paul is concerned to talk about the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. And in each section, he's got a little different uh, aspect of that faithfulness or its effect that he wants to draw our attention to. So last Sunday morning, uh, we looked at the marks of faithfulness in the Thessalonian community. Paul was thankful that they received the preached word of God. They received it very eagerly. eagerly. He's also thankful that they were willing to gladly face affliction for the cause of Christ. Remember, they suffered many things of their own countrymen, like the, the believers down in Judea did, and yet they held firm in their faith. So Paul's thankful for the marks of faithfulness that he saw in the church. Last Sunday night, if you were here, uh, we worked through a very important passage, chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, where we began to consider the great adversary of Christian faithfulness. And within those verses, Paul said that Satan had hindered him from returning to Thessalonica. And we considered the fact that as followers of Jesus Christ, those who believe in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we should not be surprised when the great opponent, the adversary, comes and he attempts to destroy us. That theme on the, the adversary of Christian faithfulness continues into chapter 3, and that's what we're going to look at today. Verses 1 through 5, we'll learn about the adversary to Christian faithfulness. And before we get into that, let me give you an illustration uh, of what I think is going on. Uh, I do not profess to be an expert in politics. I usually don't say much about it at all. I do stay aware, though, as a follower of Christ, of international news and things that impact our government. A few years ago, there was a major controversy between the United States and Iran, and the nub of the controversy, as I understood it, at least from my layman's perspective, was an alleged lack of transparency on the part of the Iranian government about possible nuclear weapons. I think much of the concern was about the unknown. We either had no idea, or perhaps some intelligence pointed that way, but the American people did not know for sure because we weren't afforded access to information the way that we desired. We didn't know if they had them or not, and I think that they probably did. Sometimes the unknown produces more concern and fear than the known. I'll give you another illustration. Perhaps you're the parent of a teenager, and uh, I told my children before this, all my teenage children, this is not about any of them. Okay, so I'm just, perhaps you're the parent of a teenager, and you arranged a start time and an end time to one of your teenager's nights, but then he or she is 30 minutes late for the end time. Parents, can you ever relate to that? And so what do you do? 30 minutes late. In, in our modern day today, you get out your cell phone, you call them on their cell phone, but then what happens? What always seems to happen in those sort of cases? Go straight to voicemail. So you're like, oh, 
what's going on? And then what do you do? Well, after a certain amount of time as a dad, you might get in the car and you kind of retrace the route of where they should be coming from. And, and your mind begins to play tricks with you if you're not careful because ultimately what's the problem? The problem is you have a concern for your child and you have no idea where they are. It's the unknown. And so you go and you find that the car broke down or, or something like that or their phone is dead or whatever other excuse they might give you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes the unknown produces concern and fear. Last week, we learned that Satan had hung a dark curtain or veil, a legal barrier which prevented Paul the Apostle from returning to the city of Thessalonica. This week, we will see that Paul was concerned about what Satan might be doing behind the veil. And so he writes 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul reveals here that he suspected that Satan was trying to annihilate the Thessalonian believers. And men and women, there, there are professing believers in our church that I'm concerned about what Satan might be doing to them. And so it'd be very good for us to learn about what Satan does, his tricks, his schemes to impact professing believers for Jesus Christ. So I want to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, which I think are one section. If you look in verse 1, it says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, then you look at verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, Paul repeats a phrase, when we could bear it no longer, when I could bear it no longer, to show us this is one section. Within the section, I think, are three parts, and I want to look through at each one of the, these parts as they... Uh, they come along, and I just remembered I've got a PowerPoint here today as well, which works. Uh, we're praising God for that on a topic like this. So the first thing I want to show you is Paul's choice, verses 1 through 3a. So look there in your Bible, Paul's choice. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. In these verses, we see that Paul makes a hard choice, a sacrificial choice, to minister to the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonian church. Remember, Satan hindered Paul by making it impossible for him to return to the city so, Paul sends Timothy, uh, someone he calls his brother, and God's fellow worker to minister to the Thessalonian congregation. remember uh, hearing one well-known preacher tell the story about his early ministry years. He had the opportunity as a young preacher to meet a, a prominent evangelical preacher. So, he's really nervous, but uh, he had a book that this man had written. So, he he took the book with him, got up enough guts, and he talked to the prominent, you know, the, the great evangelical preacher, and he had him sign his book that he had authored. When he was returning home that night, uh, he opened up the book, and he noticed the, uh, what he had said, and the address at the beginning shocked him and encouraged him. At the beginning of this uh, signature there, the man said, to my fellow worker in Christ. 
this young preacher was greatly moved that this prominent preacher would call him a fellow worker, and he could not even begin to imagine how are we co-workers. You look at this text, you see what Paul says about Timothy. He does not say that Paul and Timothy are co-workers, but he says that Timothy is his co-worker. Look in your Bible. His co-worker. God's co-worker. Wow. What a compliment here and a testimony to Timothy. Paul has God and Timothy working side by side. God's co-worker. When we labor in Christian ministry, we join God in laboring. It appears, however, as you look at this text and you learn this story, that uh, Satan's hindrance that prevented Paul from getting there did not impact Timothy. Uh, Perhaps it was because Timothy was not a full-blooded Jew. You know, maybe the persecution was coming from Jewish people who drove Paul out of the city, and they were concerned only about Jewish theology, so Greek like Timothy was no concern to them. Or perhaps the officials of the city didn't really know much about Timothy. They knew about Paul, but not the younger Timothy. Uh, Regardless, Timothy is able to slip into the city and come out of the city without many troubles, without any problems. So Paul makes a choice to be left at Athens alone and to send Timothy who can go into the city and minister to the people. And this choice significantly impacted Paul the Apostle. Not only did Paul have to face ridicule and mocking in Athens, and you could read the end of Acts 17 to read about what Paul faced alone on Mars Hill, but I was struck this week when I considered the very next place that Paul went, and that was Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians 2, he tells us exactly what it was like for him when he went alone into the city of Corinth. Remember 1 Timothy 2, when he says, and I was with you in weakness and fear and, remember, much trembling. Okay, so this choice was costly for Paul, so that when he's in Athens, he's ridiculed all alone. He goes into Corinth, and he's, he's weak, and he's fearful because of it. Regardless, Paul, Paul, Paul sends Timothy to them, and he ministers, even if the experience would not be an easy one for Paul himself. Have you ever felt alone in a spiritual endeavor? This past week, uh, our pastors here had the opportunity to share lunch with another pastor in the Hampton Road Roads, uh, region. He's the pastor of a small church that has gone through some significant trials in the last five years. And this man himself has gone through uh, significant persecution and suffering. As we listened to him, it was heart-wrenching as as he went through what God has done and how God enabled him. But we did rejoice together in sweet fellowship with him when we talked about the faithfulness of God that enabled him. I want you to read the words of the email that he sent to me after it was done, and I just want to point out something to you. He said, thank you for the incredible lunch and fellowship. I'm so grateful to the Lord for leading me to doctrinally sound men who love him dearly. My wife is extremely excited. We don't feel alone anymore. God bless you. 
my wife and I will be continually praying for you, your family, and your church family. Ever felt alone before? This is a, a shepherd who has no other shepherds there. Would you join me in praying for this man this week? And others like him. There are pastors and shepherds all around the Hampton Roads area and beyond who are by themselves facing significant trials and affliction. Would you pray for them? So as we come to this text, Paul sacrificially chose to be alone in Athens and send Timothy to them. And I think that he had good reason for sending Timothy. A good reason for sending him. Because he tells us, look down in your Bible, verse 2, what Timothy was to do. And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel, to do two things. To establish and exhort you in the faith. The word establish means to strengthen. Some of your translations might take it that. To strengthen you or to build you in your faith. The word exhort can be taken one of two ways. And many of you might know this, but it's a good, good reminder for us. Uh, the word can, can mean uh, admonition or encouragement. Okay, depending on the situation, it can come in one of two forms, this word. Okay, so for instance, uh, this week I, I read about how in, uh, on a piece of archaeological evidence, there is a picture of a Roman general with this word beside it, uh, pericolo. And the picture is of this general with a sword prodding or poking the backsides of his own army. What's he doing? He's exhorting them. He's admonishing them. He's prodding them forward. That's what this word can mean. Or it can mean something like softer encouragement where one speaks soft words of comfort and encouragement. And perhaps Timothy speaks kind words of reminders to these Thessalonians about the glories of Christ, the future glories of heaven that make it uh, worth continuing in the trial. So I think it might be encouragement. So my summary of this first point is Paul was concerned that Satan was working behind the veil, and so he sends Timothy in to encourage them. But that leads to our next point in verses 3 and 4, the end of verse 3. So look down in your Bible at the end of verse 3. It says, For you yourselves know that, he, that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Here, the second point I want to emphasize is the believer's destiny. That's what Timothy tells them. That's what Paul is concerned to remind them of here, the believer's destiny. destiny. And to be honest with you, the hardest part of this whole passage for me was to try to figure out who Paul means when he says we in a few places. Verse 3, he says, we were destined for this. And what's he talking about there? I think he's talking about suffering. And then in verse 4, we were to suffer affliction. Okay, so Paul writes a letter to Thessalonian believers, and he says, we and we. And so the big question, if you get this, I think you understand this text, is who's we? Okay, and there are two ways you can take this. Uh, for the longest time, up until this week, I took it that Paul is talking about himself and the co-workers of his in the gospel. 
that what Paul might be talking about. Thessalonians, we don't want you to be moved by the great affliction that we face as church planters. They would have been able to observe that and testify uh, regarding that. And, And again, this is how I took it until this past week. Yet I find it more compelling that when Paul says we in these two places, he's not talking about Paul and co-workers. He's talking about Paul and the Thessalonian believers or himself, his co-workers, and the believers. In other words, all believers. So when Paul was with them, when he planted the church, he kept telling them that we, you and me, all of us, will suffer as followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul emphasizes that the Thessalonian believers themselves know this to be true. You yourselves know, he says this. You know this happened. I think also when I look up to chapter 2 and verse 14, which I just, I don't know why I never did uh, in preaching this before, but you look up at chapter 2 and verse 14, in context, whose suffering is he talking about? He's talking about the suffering that they enjoyed. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. I'm in chapter 2. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Okay, and so I think that Paul is talking about the fact that the Thessalonians were destined for suffering. They were to suffer affliction just like he himself did. This word destined is a very strong word. It speaks of something that cannot be altered. And so when Paul was with them the first time, he was confident that the Thessalonian believers would be called to suffer affliction for the name of Christ. And I just thought about that this week, and I thought, how, how could he be so confident in that? I mean, if, for instance, I came to you as a church today, and I, I said that God will call you to suffer affliction for the cause of his name, how wise would it be how accurate would it be for me to say to you, you better get ready. You're going to suffer affliction. Would that be accurate for me? Could I be confident in saying that? I mean, is it, is it a certainty or is it just a possibility? And that's where I want to expose you to some of other places in the New Testament here. So Paul tells the Thessalonians up in verse 3, you're destined for this, but not only does Paul say this, I think Christ says this, I think many New Testament authors say that God's call to believers inevitably invokes opposition and suffering. You get that? God's call inevitably invokes, it includes suffering and opposition for all followers of Christ. You say, well, where is this? I'll just remind you of a few places, okay? First, I think of the words of Christ. Christ warned his disciples often that they will face persecution from both Jewish and Gentile persecutors if they will follow him faithfully. Think of Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. So here in this text in Beatitudes, Christ considers the fact that it, it just might happen, very probable or possible that you will endure affliction. You will endure suffering for the cause of my name. Go to Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, and listen to the words of Christ here. He said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Jewish persecution. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Gentile persecution. Jesus says, This is what's going to happen to you as my followers. Think of John 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, so this passage is a great one because there's a reminder to us as followers of Jesus. I have overcome the world, but there's also a reality that precedes it. In this world, you will have tribulation. You get this? This is part of Jesus' message, but it's also part of the message of Paul. I'll just give you a few places. Paul is ministering to the churches from his first missionary journey in Acts 14, verse 22, and Luke records this for us. So strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying to them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Get it? Through many tribulations. That's what it's going to cost. That's what it's going to be like. Romans 8, verse 17. This is a great little verse. It's hidden in Romans 8, at least for me. I really didn't focus on it too much until recently. He says this, And if children, if you're children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellows heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in him. Okay, so what's, what's the provision that you suffer with him? and be glorified in him. Philippians 1, 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul, the Philippian church, you're going to suffer for the sake of Christ. And of course, this kind of just wraps it all up, and for sake of time, I won't even go into the rest of the New Covenant authors who say this. Second Timothy 3, 12 and 13, Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution or will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul makes it very clear there, all followers of Jesus Christ, all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so, skipping Peter and some of the other authors here, the comprehensive message of the new covenant is that God calls and plans for believers to endure suffering for their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It is inevitable. It is a certainty, not a maybe. And so God not only determines, predetermines our eternal destiny, he also determines the earthly affliction that Christians will endure for his name. And while God is not the author of sin, he does send affliction into our lives for reasons which we sometimes don't even understand. You say to me, Pastor Brent, I don't know if I can deal with that. I don't know if that's my view of God. It doesn't fit what I know to be true of a loving, good God. I 
would remind you of one more story. It's an Old Testament story. Remember the Joseph story? Remember that Joseph story? Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers. And then he's sold into slavery. Later on, he reflects upon it, and he says to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. He intended it for good. So Paul sends Timothy to remind the Thessalonians of the inevitable nature of suffering for the Christian. This leads to one last point, Paul's concern for them, an explanation of it in verse 5. So I want to show you this in your Bible as well. Look at verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Here's Paul's concerns were twofold. He explains this to them. First, he knew that Satan loves to tempt believers with discouragement. I think Paul realizes that it would be just like Satan to use the difficult circumstances that the Thessalonian believers were going through to discourage these new converts. And so uh, this reminds us, I think, of the kind of a broad lens or view of suffering and trials. There's different ways you should look at the sufferings that you face. One, there's the supernatural, or I guess I, not supernatural, there's the superficial level. Someone does something to you, you treat it unjustly. The superficial level is there's wicked men and wicked women who are treating people unfairly. Then there's the supernatural level. Supernatural level is that Satan is the cause of the affliction that we face in this earth, or many of the, much of the affliction. And then there's the ultimate level, though, that God is the cause and is using it for His glory. I like how one commentator described this He said, herein is a conundrum. Christians are destined for suffering, and this is by the directive hand of God. At the same time, Satan, the tempter, will use the suffering to tempt Christians to compromise their faith or even abandon it, their profession of it. Satan uses suffering to tempt professing believers to quit. He is our supernatural adversary. He is at work, not only in the church of Thessalonica, but in churches around the world today. And so Paul says, or he, he explains to them, he, he knew that Satan loves to tempt believers. And then there's one other piece of information Paul knew that he wanted to communicate to them. He knew that his investment in Thessalonica could return empty. That is, Paul was concerned. He communicates this at the end of verse 5. He was concerned that Satan would have done his thing, tempting them, and that all of his labor in the city would be empty or nothingness. Okay. So, so as we close here today, I want to ask why. Why would Paul think that? Why was he concerned that the Thessalonian believers might wash out And I invite you to turn back in your Bibles to Galatians. We'll end this way. Go to Galatians. Okay, there's a few reasons I would go to Galatians in something like this. First, Galatians is similar to 1 Thessalonians in one important way. 
they are the first two letters that Paul wrote that are canonical. Okay? There was a, uh, a well-known former preacher of this assembly who I heard speak once about how you can know what uh, missionary journey Paul wrote his letters. I heard it while I was in Bible college, I think, years ago, back when this well-known preacher of Colonial Baptist Church was young. Ger. Younger, yeah. And uh, so he said, this is how you, he said, you can count to four, you can know which missionary journey Paul wrote his letters on. You ready? Number one, on, on Paul's first missionary journey, how many letters did he write? One. What is it? Galatians. On his second missionary journey, how many letters did he write? Two. What are they? First and second Thessalonians. The way this is, if you can count to four, you can figure this out. On Paul's third missionary journey, how many letters did he write? Three. What are they? We don't have time to talk about First and second Corinthians and Romans. After Paul, uh, Pastor Paul said today, uh, when Paul was not on a missionary journey, he was where? In prison, often in prison, even on those journeys. After Paul was finished with third missionary journey, went to prison, how many letters did he write? Four, from prison. What are they? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Near the end of his life, what you have to do here is you count backwards. Near the end of his life, he writes three letters to individuals, first and second Timothy and Titus. So you count up to four and back to three, you got it. Or if you think Paul wrote Hebrews, you count up to four and you just leave your finger at four. You say Hebrews two, okay? reason I go through that, the first letter he writes, Galatians. Second letter he writes, Thessalonians, written within, first Thessalonians, written within a year of each other, okay? The content of Galatians, I think, is revealing for why Paul might fear that the Thessalonian church would drop off. When we come to the epistle to the Galatians, we come to some intended readers who originally loved Paul. They're from the provinces of Galatia. Paul planted many churches in these provinces on his first missionary journey. It would be cities like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Pisidia and Antioch. And so we, we learn in Galatians that they loved Paul. Look at Galatians 4, 12 through 15. These churches of the province of Galatia, they loved Paul when he came to them. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have, think on when he plants the churches there, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Okay, so as Paul writes this letter to the churches of Galatia, he says, at once you loved me severely. I mean, you would have given me your eyeballs. We won't get into what that means, although I've got a theory. They not only loved him, they received his gospel, his message eagerly. But then later, they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ because they had been bewitched, the text says. So I want to just show you this. Look at Galatians 1. I'm just going to read through some text. I know we're, we're over time just a bit. Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul says to these churches that loved him and received his gospel, at least initially, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before our eyes, your eyes, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Look at chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? Can you turn back and look at chapter 5, verse 7? One sentence, I think, or one statement here, two, two sentences. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Perhaps in this one year since Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, he learned a few things. He learned the supernatural identity of the one who hinders men and women in their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so he presses down further in 1 Thessalonians in his writings and in his prayers, and he identifies the opponent. It's Satan, the tempter, the adversary. He works by questioning us by causing doubts, by tempting us uh, to walk away in the midst of our Christian life. And so I say to Colonial Baptist Church, do not be ignorant, but pray. Run to God in prayer and call out this adversary. Ask the one who overcomes to overcome in your heart and the heart of your family and the heart of your church family, your friends and neighbors. Let us not be ignorant of Satan, the great adversary of Christian faithfulness. This being a pastor at Colonial Baptist Church, I've seen his work on professing believers. I have seen those who once burned brightly be overcome with sorrow in a marriage and then walk away not only from the marriage but from their profession of faith in Christ. I've seen some become disillusioned by criticism Christian critics and turn away from the church. And I felt in my own soul the tug or the pull of Satan that comes as he causes fear and doubt. Let us not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. And let's remember as we sang this morning Greater is he that is within us than he that is in this world.
Let's pray together. Dear Father, though we have a supernatural adversary, we have an ultimate Savior who is overcome by his death and resurrection. So, Father, we pray, help us. Help Colonial Baptist Church and its members against Satan's attacks. Help my friends here who are tempted with discouragement. Satan is twisting their afflictions and trials down on them and wrenching their souls. God, overcome this for your glory so that my brothers and sisters who are downcast might leap in praise to the power and the grace and the freedom that comes through our overcomer, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.